Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. One of the issues that the Black Lives Matter movement has raised uh, over the last couple of weeks is, is the one of bias, the bias in our culture against people of color. Sometimes it's a very overt bias, a, a nasty, horrible kind of racism, but all too often it's, it's an unspoken bias. Sometimes uh, the bias of people who don't think of themselves as racist, who would never imagine thinking of themselves as racists. This issue of bias, of course, is one that underlies our culture and one that's causing many of the problems, I think, many of the, 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 the racial problems, the, 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 the tensions, the senses of injustice amongst the minority communities in the United States. Uh, my old friend Robin Hauser is a very distinguished uh, Bay Area-based movie director, uh, she made a, a wonderful film called Code about inequalities and gender injustices in, in, in the tech industry. That's where we first met. Uh, her second film was entitled Bias, appropriately enough for this conversation. And now she's making a film called Savvy about women and personal finance. So, uh, Robin, is the, the current Black Lives matter moment in American history. Uh, is it a great surprise to you, given that you have been uh, thinking about these issues now for much of your professional career? Well, it's not surprising to me, Andrew, that this type of bias exists. And I do believe that it's deeply rooted in systemic bias. Um, perhaps, you know, there's some unconscious bias or implicit bias that's going on as well. Um, it is surprising, however, that it's, you know, 2020 and that this type of blatant bias uh, still persists, especially with our, our police force. Um, I think it's I, I find it very discouraging that we haven't been able to move beyond this and get to a place where we're, where we're able to mitigate bias a little bit better. Uh, Robert, if you had your way with uh, re-educating the police force in particular, where we might begin, given that this current crisis was triggered by the 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 the, uh, the, the, the criminal behavior of the police, uh, where would you start? How do you address bias with white male police officers? Well, this is let's just start from the fact that bias is a survival heuristic. This is a, something that we inherited from our ancestors. Back in the days when we needed to be suspicious of people or things that were different than us, right? We lived in extremely segregated societies and tribes, and survival was dependent on us being careful of anybody um, that didn't look like us or act like us. So obviously, that doesn't serve us very well in the modern world. 
And now as we try to live in less segregated societies, we all know that we're still somewhat segregated, but when we try to all live together, um, that type of unconscious bias doesn't really serve us. In fact, it can, it can really harm us. Um, so what we're asking our police force to do is to approach sort of every situation. Well, let's just, let's just say that we learn from experience as human beings. We learn from experience, every single experience, um, we take in and we learn from. And the problem with that is when we make assumptions or calculations based on a past experience, and we assume that that means that the outcome of the next experience is going to be exactly the same. So for instance, if we pull over somebody who, um, a black person in a car, and that person happens to you know, if a police officer pulls them over and that person happens to have a gun and it's a dangerous situation, that does not give the police officer the right to make the assumption that that exact thing's going to happen when he or she pulls over a black person the next time. So what we're asking our police force to do basically is to erase any sort of previous, what they would say, you know, training scar or to erase any sort of, um, knowledge that they have or bias that they have gained from past experiences. And if we ask any human to do that, it's difficult to do, right? If we tripped over a curve, the next time we walk over the curb, we're going to be a little bit more careful. So at the same time, police officers, law enforcement are the only people in our society that we give the right to take away life. And therefore, we need to hold law enforcement incredibly accountable for their actions. So I'm not defending the police force. I do think it's important we need, we need law in our society, of course. I'm just saying that asking anybody to forget and to not learn from a past experience uh, is is something that's very, very difficult to do, right? Um, but, but again, these biases could also formulate if um, they happen to, you know, have a negative experience with a white person or with a blue person or a red person, right? I mean, anyone, really. But the problem, of course, is it always seems to be black people. There aren't blue people or green people or orange people. It's mostly whites and blacks, and, and, and then there's this deep feeling of injustice. So... You know, a white policeman pulls over a black guy driving a Honda. He doesn't think of that person as a Honda driver. He doesn't think of them as, as wearing a certain kind of clothing or having a certain kind of hairstyle or lack of hairstyle. He thinks of them, it seems at least, primarily when he first pulls that person over as a black person. Is is it possible to reform the 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 consciousness of the police officer so that the first thing that occurs to them as this white police officer when they pulls over the black guy driving the Honda is, ah, here's a Honda driver. Here's a guy who drives with gloves on. Here's a guy who, 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 um, who has a messy car or a clean car. I mean, I, 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 don't, I don't know if it's possible or not. I know that there are a lot of studies and, and um, for instance, the anti-bias 
uh, simulator um, that the University of Washington, so Spokane, is working on, um, is studying, you know, just that. Are you able to um, mitigate biases? And I think the answer, well, it's it's inconclusive. They actually don't know yet. Um, I, I think what's interesting about this um, is that if we give police law enforcement the right to to take away life, we absolutely need to make sure that they are unbiased. And the big question is, how do you do that? And in some of these um, studies that University of Washington at Spokane has been doing, they actually find that sometimes they'll they'll have them take the implicit association test and the one in, so implicit test that they're taking, the IAT, is um, whether or not they have an association of black Americans and harmful objects versus white Americans and harmful objects. And the results on those tests is that most police officers, white and black, or any color, any race, have at least a mild association of black Americans and harmful objects. Now, the reason for this, I blame on our media, right? Because of the amount of media, and, and this is something that's sort of a societal thing. So we are conditioned to have that response. We are conditioned to have that association. When they then bring these police officers into the simulator, what they find is that there's almost a counter bias. They're not sure why. They think that it's because they're at that point conscious that they might be biased and therefore they actually do the reverse and try to work it so far against it. So obviously that's not what we're seeing in actual practice, right? In society. And these cases that we're seeing um, with George Floyd and you know, the numerous other ones that, that we've seen um, obviously suggest not just an unconscious bias, but a, but a pretty blatant bias as well. I and think. a deadly one. Uh, and not only uh, blatant, but deadly. Uh, as I s suggested earlier, um, Robin, uh, we first met where when you showed your, your excellent movie, Code, Debugging the Gender Gap, which is a, a film about conscious and unconscious gender biases in Silicon Valley and in tech. Um, can AI solve the problem of bias or does it just deepen the problem of bias? I know uh, you, you, you made a very popular TED talk about protecting AI from our biases. Are we protecting our biases from AI or vice versa? <laughs> well, you know, you would think um, that, okay, if we're human, we're biased and therefore we need to get rid of the human um, part of the equation, and then perhaps maybe we can be completely objective and unbiased. But unfortunately, what some of um, our studies and, and now is fairly widely pop populated, you know, in, in uh, articles and everything else, is that artificial intelligence is biased, and it's it's biased in in several ways. Um, that bias happens in several ways. The most obvious is that they're using dated or skewed data. And as we all know, you know, garbage in, garbage out. So the data that they're using in these algorithms, uh, let's take, for example, 
um, these predictive algorithms in the courtroom that judges are using to help uh, decide sentencing, for example. Well, what they're using as data is previous cases. And in the United States, a black man is incarcerated at four times the rate of a white man for the same crime. So if you're, they're using historic data in these predictive algorithms, they're just perpetuating racial bias. There's no oversight or governance over data that's being used in these algorithms. And so without that, there's no way to control what data is being input. There's also data is very subject to human error. So let's just say um, zip codes are being used. Well, we know that zip codes are, are being used in any sort of an algorithm. Um, zip codes closely relate to race in the United States, at least, and probably in many other countries as well. And so, you know, using that, people can, or the, the computer can make assumptions um, about someone's race just by area codes or zip codes. Um, so what's, and then just think about, as I said, human error. So let's say that you have a typo and you type in the wrong figure, the wrong zip code or something. It's very difficult to correct this type of, of data bias as well, because once that data is in these deep learning systems, it's nearly impossible to extract it. So it's, it's, it's a dangerous situation. And while I believe that technology and artificial intelligence really has the opportunity um, to be very good in our society in terms of like aviation safety and, and healthcare, it also can be very damaging if, if the wrong data is in there or if they're biased. Assumptions, then there's some, the gender bias, for example. Um, if you do, I think they've improved this lately, but even up to six months ago, if you were, say, um, in Finland and you had a gender neutral language and you wanted to translate the doctor cared for its patient, the English translation would say the doctor cared for his patient. It automatically makes the assumption that a doctor is a man. Same thing goes if you put in nurse. It makes the assumption that nurse is a woman. So what it's doing is it's, um, you know, reaching out for the most common uh, associations. And then it makes that assumption that that is the norm. Is, is one way to fix this, and, and, and your work has, has, has focused on this in many ways, simply having more diversity in the tech community. So one of the reasons why these supposedly AI systems are so biased is because that the, the the programmers and the CEOs and, and the finance people they're all white young white men. If there were more African Americans, more women uh, doing tech startups, would some of these deep learning problems and biases get fixed? Well, I think anytime you have a diverse panel of people making decisions, then you're opening yourself up to. In, you know, as long as you're hearing the diverse voices, right, then you're you're opening up these decisions to um, at least thinking about diversity and, and not just a small homogeneous group. So I think that helps. But the truth is, Andrew, you're never going to be able to create an environment that incorporates every diverse aspect, right? 
So, I mean, you can't, even, even if you're trying to say you're in charge of hiring and you say, we want to make sure that we're not biased in our hiring. So we want to have an interview panel that is male and female and maybe somebody that, you know, doesn't conform to, to gender norms and we need somebody who's, um, uh, disabled and we need somebody who's, you know, you, you could just go on and on and on. And how realistic is that? So the question is, how do we train all of us to not just think for ourselves, but to think outside the box and to be able to think for like a broader group of group of, of humanity. And that's just not easy to do because it's not how we're wired. It's important. It's what we have to do. But it's really not that easy. As everybody knows, the, our current situation is in one in which there's a, a medical, a political, and an, and an economic crisis all in one. Um, and all too often, um, that's impacting uh, communities of color more than anyone else. Uh, and I think women. Uh, your, your, the film you're working on now, Savvy, which is focusing on women and personal finances, is, is, is a film about uh, empowerment, a film about how women need to take control of their personal finances. Uh, I, I assume um, that, that the, the message in Savvy extends beyond gender to, 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 to communities of color as well. Um, and I'm curious what you think the economic solution is to our current coronavirus crisis. Well, what I'll say is this. The economic downturn that COVID-19 has um, presented, uh, if, if you owned a small business and you're shut down for, for three months, there's really not, not that much you can do because not many small businesses are able to hold that type of cash reserves, right? Some are, and some will survive, but I think that's difficult. But what I'm concerned about in, the, in terms of this film is really personal finance. And if you live on this sort of edge of financial fragility, which so many people do, and suddenly, you know, you're laid off or um, you don't have the income that you were expecting and you can't live for a month or two or three on your own, um, then that's, that's a problem, right? And so understanding personal finance and managing and being smart about having emergency funds is crucial. And I think the economic downturn of COVID-19 is really, really highlights how crucial managing and understanding personal finance is to survival. Um, in terms of, you know, giving voice to women of color, to people of color, I mean, absolutely. This, this really financial fragility crosses socioeconomic boundaries. Um, you can have somebody who makes $5 million a year and they might be spending $6 million a year, right? I mean, we see that all the time. Um, so it really it crosses socioeconomic boundaries. But I think there's absolutely no doubt that there is bias in, you know, who's given loans, um, who is, uh, who's able to get that mortgage and who isn't. And if you look at just historically, you'll see that women and women of color, people of color overall, both genders, um, have a harder time, are charged more for mortgages, <clears throat> for loans, 
um, have less access to credit. So there's some great inequities and, uh, and that's a problem. I think, I think also just even this understanding that, or this tendency, this social norm that we have, not just in the United States, I'm learning, it's really in several, um, in many countries, but is this tendency that women have to abdicate major financial decisions to the men in their lives. And you would think that this was something that maybe our grandparents used to do, our parents did, we do it a little bit less extent. What I was shocked to learn is that millennials have a higher rate, 61% of millennials, millennial women abdicate major financial decisions to men. Now that to me is shocking. And I don't exactly understand why. Um, but it's, but it's a problem. It's a problem if you're suddenly widowed. It's a problem if you're suddenly, you know, on your own because of divorce. Um, but not understanding and not managing personal finance, uh, can leave a woman. This is, this is why a higher percentage, much higher percentage of women live below the poverty level in retirement than men do. Finally, Robin, um, everyone should of course see bias and code your excellent movies about these uh, tech technological and, and and gendered injustices they should also see savvy when it comes out but what should people be reading uh to make sense of of these injustices what did you read before you made these films well i tend to read books from authors that i you know admire um Malcolm Gladwell or I, 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 I try to read, um, well, first of all, I have Google alerts that, that set up any article that comes out anywhere in the world about the subject that I'm studying, that I'm making a film about. So right now I get articles every single morning, um, from the financial times, from, you know, Yahoo finance, um, from Washington post, the New York times. I think what's important for me is to make sure that I'm not just uh, reading information from one political side or from anyone that has an agenda. And I think these days it's harder and harder to find um, articles and facts that are neutral. Uh, so I think that's the biggest challenge right now. I find that even with the news, don't you? I mean, if you, you know, you can Fox on one end and CNN on the other, but where's just the non-opinionated truth? I think it's so hard to find right now. And if there's one one author, one author, um, uh, Robin, would, would it be Gladwell or, or somebody else? Oh, that I you... think you're, putting me, you're putting me on the spot. I think it depends on the on the subject um, matter. When it comes right? to women, when it comes to uh, gendered bias and the the the, the 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 still the sexist nature of our society. I don't know. You're putting me on the spot. I mean, I've I've read, you know. Almost everything Gloria Steinem has to has to say and has written about it. I think she's fascinating and brilliant. Um, but I'll, let me get back to you on that. <laughs> You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. 
while you're at it. If you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.